Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on care delivery. Good morning and thank you for being here. Uh, I know that sometimes it's difficult with the traffic, but I appreciate your time. Um, my name is Sandra Pedraza. I am a palliative care physician and a, a geriatrician. I am also an, a um, trained acupuncturist. And I am bringing this talk to you because it's very important to understand and integrate um, uh, two different worlds, the Western world, conventional medicine, and the Eastern world, and trying to improve uh, palliative care in our patients. So I call my talk, The Value of Integrated Medicine in Palliative Care. So the objectives of my talk is review evidence-based integrative therapies, describe effects of acupuncture in our brain and our body, and determine when to use complementary approaches for specific symptoms. So why is this important? So 30% of adults in US are using already complementary or alternative treatments in their normal healthcare. So that's why as physicians or healthcare providers, we have to know a little bit about this so we will be able to guide our patients in a better way. So why uh, complementary and alternative? We use both terms inter interchangeably, but they are completely different. So complementary and alternative are multiple and a variety of disciplines, practice and products that are used to improve care, but they don't have good evidence base. So that's why we call that non-conventional medicine. However, when we talk about complementary, we talk about non-conventional medical care used along with conventional therapies, and that's what we call complementary medicine. On the other hand, alternative is when we use non-conventional uh, medical practices in place of conventional medical practices. So when we talk about alternative medicine, we have to say that it's difficult for us as evidence-based physicians or healthcare providers to advise patients to use these kind of alternative medicines instead of conventional medical care. So, what is integrative medicine then? Integrative medicine is a concept. It's evidence-based complementary and conventional care fit together in a coordinated way to improve quality of life and well-being in our patients. I know that it's a little bit difficult to understand so what is complementary and integrative, but if we understand that non-conventional and conventional medical approaches can work together, that's what is integrative medicine. So there are four specific therapies that are part of the complementary uh, approaches. And I will talk about each of them in detail later on. So we have the biological-based therapies. The biological-based therapies are active herbs or natural products that have an effect in our body. 
when we talk about manipulative and body-based methods, we talk about that connection between our body and our brain and how massage, chiropractic, osteopathy, and others can improve our well-being and also our mind. When we talk about mind and body medicine, it's kind of similar, but we use different techniques, mostly movement techniques, to connect our brain and our body. When we use about, talk about energy therapies, we talk about that energy that flows in our body. However, modern uh, equipment that we use to measure that body, that energy in our body hasn't been able to reproduce that energy that these specific therapies talk about. But in this category we have Reiki, Magnet, and Qigong, and I will talk about that later. Now what is alternative medicine systems? There are specifically four kinds of uh, medical systems that encompass all of those. And they use the biological, the manipulative, the mind and body medicine, and the energy medicine to improve our health. The four most common ones are traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy and neuropathy from Europe, Ayurvedic medicine from India, and native folk medicine from Americas. So now, I will stop here and I will tell you that 30 to 40% of people worldwide are using already complementary or integrative medicine in, our, um, in, the, in their healthcare. And the other important fact is that in the United States, the use of integrative medicine has been used exponentially across all settings. So that's why it's so important for us to get educated about how we will incorporate integrative medicine in our medical practice. So I am giving you a brief summary about what we usually pull our arsenal of medications in palliative care. We use opioids and other kind of analgesic adjuvants, spinal opioid therapy, nerve blocks, antidepressants, antiemetic medications to improve symptoms in our patients. But we can also use complementary approaches to enhance and improve the symptoms in our patients and probably um, achieve a faster way for them to feel better. Acupuncture, massage, mind-body therapies, music therapy, and nutrition and diet. So one thing that you will see always in my notes in palliative care when I am giving recommendations is I always talk about exercise, even in my very advanced cancer patients, and uh, indirect uh, like exposure, because that will improve uh, sleep patterns, and that will improve fatigue and energy levels. Okay, so there are two concepts that I also want to talk a little bit about, and it's the concept of well-being and the concept of quality of life, because we think that both of them are the same and they are not. So what is well-being? Well-being is a positive experience of people's daily life, how they feel with themselves in respect of how they interact with their environment. So positive emotions, quality of their relationships with their partner or family members, resilience when they are enduring this advanced disease, or realization of their potential even if they are sick. So that's what it is, well-being. And usually, in many of the symptom assessment scales, we use well-being and we ask the patients to rate that from zero to 10. But in order to 
be more uh, evidence-based approach physicians, we need to make sure that whatever we are going to recommend to our patients is, has safety and efficacy. And how we achieve that? Doing randomized controlled trials or doing um, a, a, a literature review, we can encourage patients or disencourage patients to use certain specific uh, therapies. So I divide uh, the um, safety and efficacy of the therapies that we will talk about in four categories. The ones that are safe and helpful are the ones that you always want to recommend because you know that they will get some benefit. The ones that are um, safe, but you are not sure if they are helpful because the studies probably are not as robust as other studies. You might say it and talk about it, but you can say to the patient that probably you are not sure if they are going to work or not. The ones that are useful but with risk, for example, uh, herbs or uh, botanical products, those are active, but, uh, active um, metabolites in your body and you don't know what kind of side effects or medication interaction they will have. So you have to be very careful when you recommend these kind of practices. And the ones that are harmful with no benefit at all. So you want to avoid those. Okay, so now we will talk about each specific therapy. So we have touch therapies. And when we talk about touch therapies, we talk about massage, reflexology, Sudish massage, uh, we talk about Reiki. Um, we can say that even acupressure is a kind of touch therapy. And they are safe. Uh, you, usually, phys, uh, medical institutions have already uh, trained massage therapists in their departments to help with this kind of therapist. And it's readily available. What are the limitations? So you have to be careful if the patient has higher risk of bleeding, any thrombocytopenia, any fractures. So you have to be careful uh, if they are going to press in areas that are sore because they can have more harm than benefit. One important study that was released in 2012 uh, is the use of touch therapy and training caregivers to provide that in hospice, in home hospice settings. So the importance of this study that was um, published in Support Cancer uh, Care was that um, they grabbed 197 patients in nine different cancer centers in the United States and they trained their caregivers with a DVD, uh, video that uh, lasts 78 minutes and also with a manual. They were trained about how to provide touch therapy at home. And what they saw is that 29% uh, to 44% of patients that receive uh, touch therapy report improvement in pain, nausea, anxiety, and depression. And also for the caregiver, that entitled the caregiver to feel like they were doing a better job in their caregiver. Uh, caregiving uh, um, a action. So that was a very important uh, article that probably opened the door for many hospitals to hire more uh, massage therapists and train caregivers and implement this kind of practice in uh, end-of-life care. The other one is mind and body therapies. So what are mind and body therapies? Hypnosis, imaginary guidance, um, 
mindfulness, and even uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Even though cognitive behavioral therapy is considered now conventional therapy, it starts as a non-conventional therapy until many papers came on and proved that a cognitive behavioral therapy alone or even by itself was producing a long-lasting effect in anxiety, depression, and also was treating other psychiatric conditions in many patients. So it's safe, has good evidence, but the limitations with mind and body therapies is time-consuming. Sometimes it's difficult for patients that are very sick or they have a very short attention span to stay and participate or talk if they are short of breath, if they have dyspnea, for 90, 60 or 90 minutes about what is going on in their lives. So that's one of the biggest limitations. I brought this paper because it's very important for us as a healthcare providers. And mindfulness has been used to reduce physician burnout. And basically what it says is in many primary care uh, physician settings, the amount of consoles or the emotional burden that physicians carry increase the burnout. And when we use just 15 minutes on mindfulness, we can improve our uh, empowering of what we are doing is right. And also we are calming ourselves and making sure that we are more empathic with our patient and even we are accepting our job better. Okay, so we will move forward and we will talk about movement therapies. Any particular knowledge about movement therapies? We use this all the time. So we use Tai Chi, I am a geriatrician, so I always recommend my patients to use Tai Chi to improve balance and reduce falls. That's one of the biggest problems in geriatrics. And when we start to advance in age, we lose muscle mass and the risk of falls is higher. So when we encourage patients to do exercise and Tai Chi that focus on balance, we are reducing the risk of falls and are many studies already proving that. Yoga also helps with relaxation, with uh, respiration, reduce anxiety and depression. Qigong is a specific um, combination of meditation and exercise at the same time. It's a Chinese technique and has been very helpful also in elderly population. And exercise and fitness programs. Many of my patients said, how can you expect me to walk if I am barely able to get out of my bed? And I always said to them, as long as you have the strength to get out and go to the bathroom, you can start to build your endurance with 10 minutes walking until you are able to do 30 minutes walking. I don't expect you to run a marathon, but if you are able to walk, you will feel much better. And it's the same thing that happens when we go to the gym. We, the first week we feel really bad and sore, but then after that we are getting more encouraged to go to the gym and do more exercise. Music therapy. So we have been using in hospice settings music therapy because it reduces suffering. There are many ways to deliver music therapy and this is a very personal experience. There are patients that were musicians themselves, so they would like to continue practicing that. So we always have to have some kind of encouragement on that also listening, imaginary music, and performance. What is important music as well 
is that it's not just for the patient but also for the families. In many memorials you will have music because it makes them remember and bring memories from the person that is no longer there. For the loved one that is already gone and it helps with grief and bereavement. However, there was a recent um, uh, literature reviews that showed that five studies where they used music therapy the sense of suffering was not reduced. So there are still much randomized controlled trials that need to be done and studies that need to be done in order to prove that music therapy will reduce pain and suffering in patients at the end of life. Okay, this is one that is very broad, which is nutrition and diet, and I will just briefly talk about those. Why? because there are many products and uh, botanical products that are available. There are web pages that you can Google and you will be able to find more um, uh, information about each product. And I think it will take me probably two hours to go into each botanical product in detail. Um, so I will talk about the four that I use the most uh, and probably you can use it in your uh, private practice as well. So when we use turmeric, turmeric probably our curcumin is one of the products that have the strongest evidence of, for anti-cancer therapies. But and many patients with cancer, they are already taking turmeric. However, you have to advise the patients that curcumin can interact and reduce the efficacy of some chemotherapy treatments that are cyclophosphamide um, uh, agents. So you need to be careful with those. Chamomile has a very weak evidence, but it's used for soothing and also in uh, sleep hygiene. So I always use chamomile and lavender as part of my sleep hygiene education to the patient. So you, as you know, insomnia is one of the biggest problems in advanced uh, uh, patients, uh, in, in advanced diseases, um, advanced cancer patients, or patients with uh, COPD, or patients uh, with um, uh, multiple sclerosis. And why is that? Because they have pain, or they have um, uh, apneas, apneic episodes. So, when the patient on top of their advanced disease is also sleeping during the day, having a lot of daytime naps and also reducing their physical activity, uh, they have more chances to have a, a disruptive sleep pattern. When you educate the patients about the sleep hygiene, you are trying to make the patient realize that all those stimulant substances that they take toward the end of the day is going to even make their sleep pattern worse. So I always said, just develop a routine. And what is the routine? Stop drinking tea or coffee two hours before going to bed. Stop doing activities that are going to keep your mind activated, like watching TV or um, using or smoking cigarettes. And use chamomile or uh, lavender before you go to bed. Take a bath. We do that with kids. So why we don't use that when we are grown-ups? Capsaicin, chili pepper, hot chili pepper, is helpful for neuropathic pain. So what are the most common symptoms in palliative care? We have a very wide variety of symptoms. Nausea, pain, anxiety, dry mouth, fatigue, 
Very important, aromatase inhibitors are associated with musculoskeletal pain, and that's why patients that are on aromatase or tamoxifen, they complain about, about muscle pain. It's not that they are faking that, it's that they really feel it. Hot flashes, lymphedema, sleep disturbances, as I said. So what are the most common ones that we see, for example, in advanced cancer patients? From those. Which one? Okay, but one that you always see, everybody, 100% of the patient will complain about. Pain. Pain, yeah. And the other one? Fatigue. They are feeling really bad. So pain and fatigue are the most common ones. And that's why, again, these go tied with integrated medicine. You have to encourage the patient to reduce fatigue doing more physical activity. Now I will stop here and I will say that since I am a trained acupuncturist physician, I want to go in detail about acupuncture and how acupuncture has been used to reduce multiple symptoms in uh, patients with advanced disease. So the modalities of acupuncture is body acupuncture, auricular acupuncture, electroacupuncture, or even acupressure. And what is acupressure? It's basically produced massage in those acupoints that have been studied for millenniums that are going to cause a sensation in our body or are going to affect a specific organ. And you just need to put your finger and pressure for about a minute to produce an effect in the organ that you want to achieve. It has good evidence and multiple randomized controlled trials have been done with acupuncture. It's not always readily available. It's not recommended of patients with coagulopathies or with immunosuppression. Even though nowadays we use sterile needles and they are individually rapid and they are disposable, but still we have to be very careful. Now I will pass some of those needles. This is the one that I use for body and those are the ones that I use for hand or for the ear. Okay, so I will pass that along. So as you can see, you can open it if you want. So the diameter of our acupuncture needle is very thin, is similar to a whisker of a cat, and is very flexible, and it shouldn't be painful when we introduce the needle in the body. The sensation that we want to achieve is what we call, or in Chinese medicine they call the qi. And the chi is a very personal sensation and is not painful. It should be a feeling of tingling, a feeling of warmth, a feeling of um, sometimes discomfort, and sometimes you don't even feel anything when you have a very well-trained acupuncturist because they don't have any much, like much pain elicit in the area that they want to um, put the needle on. So why I, I think that acupuncture has been used in pain management? As I told you, and if you remember the first diagram that talked about the four specific groups of complementary uh, treatments, and 
traditional Chinese medicine accomplish all of those, it also goes along with the principle of pain expression. So what happened? We have a tumor, a fracture, a mass that is compressing a spe an specific area of our body and cause a nociceptive pain that goes into our brain, spinal cord and our brain, into that sens uh, somatosensor uh, area of co and cortex area where we have those pain receptors. And then is also the expression of that pain and it varies depending on each patient. There are patients that have tumors all over their body and their pain expression is pretty low. And there are some that they just have one tumor, but that tumor is causing significant amount of pain and that's how they express that. And that is how we decide which kind of treatments we will provide to the patient. If they have lower pain expression or higher pain expression. When we talk about acupuncture, we are talking that acupuncture can help to tackle all those. And why is that? Because it's a connection between the body and the mind. So if we go in detail about the studies that have been done in acupuncture. So when the needle is introduced in our skin, we are going to activate C fibers and A delta fibers that are going to conduce the pain stimuli into the dorsal horn. And when the acupuncture needle produces that chi effect, what the studies have shown in uh, animal um, uh, models is that they reduce the neuromodular substance that are associated with pain sensation, specifically encephalins. And they reduce the perception of pain. And when it goes to our area of the limbic system, when we have the pain sensation and the emotions tied along with the pain sensation, then that pain expression is already modulated and probably the severity of the pain is not that much. So as I said before, the acupuncture analgesia works mostly in the limbic system. That is the system associated with emotions, uh, affect, mood, and pain perception. And there are many studies already done where adenosine, which is another neuromodulator, is reduced with the use of acupuncture. So the perception of the pain is less. So those are ways to produce pain sensation. For example, this is auricular acupuncture. This is electric acupuncture. You see those cables that are going to conduct electricity into those needles. And we can manipulate the needles as long as the needle penetrates the skin. We can either manipulate the needle with our hand, we can manipulate the needle with electric acupuncture, or with heat using mozza or a heating lamp. And that manipulation, depending what we want to achieve in that patient or with the treatment that we are providing, is what is going to reduce the pain sensation. This treatment is specifically for neuropathy in patients with bone marrow transplant or chemotherapy-related neuropathy. 
you can see the red dots where the needles were inserted. That's the local reaction that the needle can produce because it produced vasodilation. And also a lot of substance P that is related with pain is released in those areas, producing less pain sensation. Okay, so now we will go to the evidence base. So, five randomized controlled trials were done. This is a systematic review done by the uh, National Cancer Institute and where five randomized controlled trials were reviewed for postoperative pain in breast cancer patients, uh, acupuncture versus usual care, and the result is the acupuncture group had improved range of motion and pain. For patients with aromatase inhibitors, musculoskeletal pain, four randomized controlled trials, two studies were done with manual acupuncture and two with electric acupuncture, and all four studies show significant benefit when compared with usual care. And for neuropathy, one randomized controlled trial and multiple case series, There's still a lot of room for research in this area. All the studies demonstrate significant improvement in all the patients after that intervention. Okay. Any questions until now? I know that this is a very different kind of medicine that we are not trained about, but it's important to know so you can recommend or guide the patients when they want to pursue this kind of treatments. Okay, if we go specifically for symptoms and which therapies are going to produce more effect in order to reduce a specific symptom. So fatigue, as I said, is one of the most common symptoms expressed by advanced cancer patients. So conventional care is steroids, psychostimulants. We do also, we encourage patients to do exercise. So for the complementary part, hypnosis, yoga, Qigong, acupuncture, seven randomized controlled trials that proved that fatigue was reduced in patients, and ginseng. For nausea and vomiting, this is the most convincing and they have the strongest evidence for acupuncture benefits. 53 randomized controlled trials were done for nausea and vomiting for uh, nausea and vomiting associated to chemotherapy with positive effects. Acupressure is also a technique that we can use on those patients even if we are not acupuncturists, but if we learn where is the nauseous or acupoint located, and if you grab your three fingers and you put it in the crease of your wrist, in the middle, at the end of your three fingers, in the middle, that's the nausea point. And you can massage that for one minute and that reduce nausea. It's used also in postpartum and also used in uh, um, a pregnancy for nausea. Have you been using it? No, we wish we had known about it. <laughs> <laughs> Relaxation and ginger as well. Okay, and you see the broad variety of medications that we provide to patients. But if we use in conjunction, and that's what we have to do more research about, is 
if the use of complementary medicine along with the conventional care will re reduce the amount of medication that patients need to take in order to feel better. Anxiety and depression, again, acupuncture, electric acupuncture has been showing a lot of evidence. However, acupuncture has been, um, the studies are showing that for anxiety and depression, acupuncture has weak evidence and more research needs to be done. Music therapy, relaxation technique, and mindfulness uh, based stress reduction is the most important one. Uh, that's the technique, the complementary technique that has shown more evidence for anxiety and depression. And it goes along with the cognitive behavioral therapy that we recommend to our patients. And those are the variety of medications that we use. Selective serotonin, reuptake inhibitors, um, psychostimulants as well, if we want to achieve a faster effect of, on those patients with advanced disease that they don't have that much time. Hot flashes in patients that are on aromatase. We use gabapentin, we use belafactin. And acupuncture has shown from six randomized controlled trials to reduce frequency and severity. Okay, so what is quality of life? We are doing all this and we are learning and being here every this morning to improve quality of life in our patients with advanced diseases. So what is quality of life? Quality of life is when we have a positive perception of our physical body well-being, when we are able to function socially, when we are able to be in tune with our emotions without overexpressing our emotions, and when we have peace in our minds. That's quality of life. And that's what we want to do as palliative care physicians. We want to improve quality of life, even if the expectancy of life is not that long. That time being, we want to make the patient feel better. So now, I will stop here, and I am ready for questions, and ask whatever you want, because I know that this is quite new for you, and probably there are many things that I didn't talk about, because it will take me a long time, but I am ready for you to try to answer those. Any specific questions about symptoms? Actually, I have a few questions. Sure. Uh, let's start with massage therapy. Is that the same as given in spas? And um, I know that you said uh, randomized control trials have been done for it. What percentage actually shows improvement? Okay. So the ones that you go to the spa, uh, they offer different kinds of massage therapies. If you uh, go into the menu of massage that you can get in a spa, they do Swedish massage, uh, they do reflexology, um, scalp massage. The scalp, the, the massage therapy that has been used in their studies is the massage provider by a licensed masseuse that usually are physical therapists or non-physical therapists, uh, um, 
personnel who has been working in hospital environments with sick people. Like I said before, it's a skill that is readily available, but you have to have some training and understanding about how our body works when we have or when we are enduring a disease. So you cannot produce the same pressure in a body that is completely healthy with a big muscle mass than in a body that is thin and cachectic, where if you press, put the same pressure, you can fracture and cause pathologic fractures on those patients. So usually our trained uh, uh, masseuse people that are uh, prepared to deal with advanced uh, uh, cancer patients or patients with advanced diseases in a hospital setting. So it's different from the massage that you go to a spa However, the advantage, and there are some room for research there, is that just training caregivers who were not massage therapist trained uh, personnel were able to accomplish a positive effect in the body of those patients that were toward the end of life and having a lot of symptoms. So that gives us a positive effect that even just the fact that somebody who cares for you touch you and put some kind of thoughts and that emotion in that touch is going to produce an effect in your body. If there is a placebo effect there, probably there is, it's difficult to measure and that's why the studies using massage therapy are going to be some bias, have some bias, because you probably need to compare uh, trained massage therapies with non-trained massage therapies and see if the effect is going to be the same. Uh, I am, on my knowledge, I haven't been coming across with a study like that, but probably that's something that needs to be done in order to prove if the effect that you achieve with somebody that is trained or not is going to be the same. I had a patient with refractory lymphedema. <laughs> they tried Lasix, but because of her blood pressure, they were not able to do too much with that. Um, she wanted subcutaneous needles placed because back in her country, some of them do that. Uh, we, I know that in U.S., are not very comfortable with that. <laughs> do you know anything about uh, the subcutaneous noodles and needles? And uh, what else do you recommend in complementary therapy? Okay. So for lymphedema, I have to say that the studies done on lymphedema patients are showing uncertainty about the effect of acupuncture to reduce lymphedema. So that's why it's something that we are not completely sure if this kind of complementary technique will help or not. However, the most important piece about getting knowledge in integrated medicine is that you as a provider need to feel comfortable who are you going to refer your patient to. So in hands of a very experienced acupuncturist, probably that lymphedema can't improve with acupuncture. And those are the biases that we are seeing in the studies done with acupuncture for lymphedema patients. There are some groups that are showing improvement of that lymphedema, some of them know. So that's why there is still a lot of study that need to be done in that population. The problem is the power of the sample that we use for those studies is so reduced that we cannot prove that the effect will go across all settings and make sure that this is going to work for all the populations that are experiencing lymphedema. I think that you are bringing a very good point that I forgot to talk about it, is that we as a, a healthcare providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, 
uh, even nurses who are at the bedside of the patient, they need to understand that not all the persons that offer specific treatments are having the same skills than others. And you have to be very well um, aware who you trust and what is your network around and who you will send those patients to. That's one thing. The second thing is, as you will say, many patients go to complementary medicine because it's part of their belief system, it's part of their culture. And you have to be open to hear and ask about it. You cannot be negative right away to that kind of uh, healthcare approaches because then the patient is not going to trust you. So if you, on the other hand, have some knowledge and you try to be more receptive to whatever they trust about in this scenario, then they will be more able to disclose what they are using so you will provide better guidance to them. more. <laughs> uh, what do you think about magnesium and neuropathic pain, magnesium use? So magnesium is a, an element that we used uh, for improvement of the sensation of the pain and uh, the axonal wave. So the theory behind that is when the magnesium is low, the sensation of the pain is not is is going to be more because the levels of magnesium that help for that flow are not there so that's why magnesium is one of those elements that we recommend however like i said there are few studies done on that and if it's not going to cause any kind of interaction with whatever medication the patient is taking or increase diarrhea on patients that are having already continuous diarrhea or improve uh, or provides more side effects on the patient, why not? So that's also a clinical approach. Uh, you have to be very judicious who and how are you going to recommend a specific uh, um, botanical products or even elements. The same thing with the zinc. Zinc is used for dysgeusia, which is altered taste, on patients uh, during chemotherapy treatments. So if you provide zinc in high doses, you can increase the risk of diarrhea on patients. So you have to be very careful how much you will provide. And uh, usually what I do is I provide 200 um, milligrams of zinc per day on patients that are having uh, chemotherapy. No more than that. Thank you. Okay. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access 
PCIC curriculum.